Let us now read together from God's holy word. If you're following along this morning in your own Bible, we'll be in John chapter 14, uh, beginning in verse 1. John writes and records these words of Jesus saying, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself. And where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, words that we all know, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on account of the works themselves. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask now as we open it to study it that you would use it to convict us and to encourage us and to equip us to seek evermore after the righteousness of Christ and the things of your kingdom. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. We've been uh, preaching through the I Am statements. This is the next to last one of them. Harry already said we'll take a short break uh, for the uh, Advent season and then pick up with the last one of these after Christmas. But the one this morning is probably one of the more famous of them. One of the more famous ones that Christ says, I am the way and the truth and the life. It's a statement we often use. It's a powerful statement. It's one we often use to begin to build the apologetic that um, Christ is the only way, the exclusivity of Christianity to, to God and to heaven and to life everlasting. And it absolutely teaches that clearly. But the context that it's spoken into would say that it's much more than that, that it's bigger than that, that it's deeper than that. And I want us to see that this morning, that, that what we have as John gives us these words of Jesus at the start of John 14 is that his disciples are uncertain. His disciples are troubled. You see, just before this passage, Jesus has been laying before them the idea that he is going somewhere, that he is leaving them. And where he is going, at least for now, they cannot follow him. For you and I, how, how troubling this must have been is a little bit lost because we haven't spent the last three years in the physical presence of Christ. We haven't been following him. He hasn't been our leader in such a tangible way. We haven't seen firsthand the many miracles he's done, how he's provided time and time again for them. And that's what they're feeling. I've been following this man for three years, and now he says, I'm leaving you, and where I'm going, at least for now, you cannot follow. While we don't know that uncertainty, we each have some uncertainty that we do know. 
We come to the season of Advent, a season that's supposed to be full of joy and happiness and hope. And what we know is that there is some door in front of us or something around the corner that is troubling us. That brings anxiety and worry to our hearts and to our lives and pushes us into fear of the unknown. It's into that context that Jesus this morning speaks. It's into that context that of their anxieties and their fears and their worries that Jesus says to them, let not your hearts be troubled. Such tender words. As he holds them tight and says, don't worry, little ones. And then he begins to lay out for them and point them to a future, a glorious future, a beautiful future, a future that, that we all long for and hope for, and a future that they're going to have with him. And that's what we want to see this morning, that because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, when we are facing life's uncertainties, we can take comfort. We can be reassured that we have a future that is with our God, knowing that no matter what happens between now and the end of it all, we are guaranteed this glorious future with our God because of Christ. We're going to see the hope and the promise and the joy that is this in three ways this morning. You can see them in your bulletin, the outlines we have. First, what is the best part? The best part of this glorious future, the best part of heaven. Second, we're going to, we're going to look at the means to or the way to heaven. And then lastly, the certainty or the, the assurance of. We'll begin first with the best part. If you'll look with me, let's start in verses 1 to, 1 to 3. John writes, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in me and believe also. Believe in God and believe also in me. Let's stop there and realize that the, the, the key thing here, the key thing he's laying out for them, the key thing for us, when life comes at us and we are faced with uncertainty and trouble and worry and anxiety, God is saying to us, have faith in me. Have faith in my promises that they are true. Have faith that I am who I say I am. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, believe in God, believe also in me. Believe in what I'm about to tell you. And so what does he want them to believe? Well, he says, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. What do we see here? In the midst of his disciples' struggle, in the midst of their uncertainty and their fears and their worries and their anxiety, what does he point them to? He points them to a glorious future. He points them to a heaven. But what's the key? Who are they going to be with? They're going to be with him. See the emphasis he places on here. My father's house, I go, I will come again and take you to myself so that you may be with me. My father, I go, I will come again. It's this continual emphasis on him. That the, the, the glorious future that they have that's to calm them and comfort them is glorious, not because of where it is, but because of who they will be with. He's not encouraging them with just some vague idea of heaven. 
It's not the where they're going, it's the who they're going to be with. Martin Luther says, uh, said, said this of, of heaven, he would rather be in hell with Christ than in heaven without him. Now we, we know that's impossible, but you get the point that he's saying is that, that heaven is the presence of God with us. The eternal relationship we have, everlasting, with him in his presence. It's not just this idea that's this little heaven that we sometimes get in our mind of playing golf in retirement all day. And, and, and we, we get this, I, I think, probably from an older translation of this verse. If you grew up with the King James or you still read from the King James, it doesn't say he's got many rooms, right? If you got it in front of you, it says he's got what? He's got many mansions. He's got many mansions. And, and, and this gives us idea of this lavishness, this, this over-the-top abundance. But I don't know about you, but when I think about mansions, I think about walls and, and yards and, and, and my three acres of heaven in suburbia that you don't mess with me. I don't have to know my neighbors. You leave me alone to do my gardening and my fishing and my golfing. You know, I, I, I mentioned that I, I, I watched this game and I lost my voice in cheering at the end, but I, I got so fed up with being asked how we were doing and what the score was that I retreated upstairs to my bedroom to be left alone. I closed the door. Because I was being pestered. And not, not by people that I don't love. I just didn't want to deal with it anymore. And we get this view of heaven that that's kind of what's going to happen. We're going to get to go to our room and close the door and just be left at peace, alone. There's two problems with this. Is that One, this is not what that word translates to. There's a lot of um, liberty taken in translating it as mansions. It just means a dwelling place. It could be a house or a hut or a tent, an apartment or a condo or just a room. The emphasis is not on how lavish or how grand, but who you are with. D.A. Carson, a theologian, says it's not the lavishness of each apartment or the room, but the fact that such ample provision has been made that there is more than enough room, more than enough space for every one of Jesus' disciples to join him in his father's house. Are you one of his disciples? Has he prepared room for you? That's what Jesus is showing them. That, that his intention isn't for them to take comfort in what heaven is. But who they will be joining in it. He goes to prepare a room that he will return. And bring them to himself. The apostle Paul expresses this as well. Pretty clearly in a few places. First. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, Paul writes to the, to the Corinthian church of how they're in good courage. Beginning in verse 6, he says, We are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home. He doesn't stop there. We'd rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. He says it this way to the Philippian church in chapter 1. He says, beginning in verse 21, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. 
If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. Why is he so hard-pressed between life and death? Because his desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But he says, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. What's he saying to the Philippians? Paul's saying, I want to die and go to heaven. Why? Because I want to be with Jesus. I want to be with my Savior and my Lord. But then he says, it's better for you that I don't die yet. I'd I'd rather be gone and with him, but because of you and and what you need, I'm going to stay. I don't know if I'd be encouraged by that if I was the Philippians. You need me, so I'm staying around. But I'd rather not be here. But in both places, the emphasis isn't he'd rather be in heaven. It's he'd rather be with the Lord. With the Lord. Revelation 21. Words we, 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 we know if you've um, heard me preach probably ever. Because I think I probably repeat them in most of my sermons. And, and here I'm going to read them to us so it's even better. John writes, And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth had passed away. And the sea was no more, and he sees a holy city coming down, and he hears a loud voice from the throne. And and, and the voice proclaims, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And then the hope and the joy of heaven, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. You hear it there. He will be with them. They will be his people. Who's wiping away the tears? It is God himself. And we we, we have a little view of heaven, I think, because probably like me, many of you first came to faith out of fear of hell. I was an eight-year-old sitting in the pews of Western Heights Baptist Church in Dinwiddie County. It was a revival and I can't remember the guy's name. He was a decent preacher. But he spent night after night after night proclaiming uh, hell, fire, and brimstone. And I was, um, I was scared. Uh, he also spent, he would, he would like do these chalk drawings um, each evening. And, and sometimes people that came and walked down the aisle uh, to give them their life to Christ, he would give them the chalk drawings. So there was like this double, like, present for me at the end. I didn't have to go to hell if I accepted Jesus, and I might get the chalk drawing. Um, I only got a New Testament version of the Bible. Um, But I ran down that aisle out of fear of hell. Not out out of love for my Savior, not not out of a desire to be in heaven with Him. I think as, as we grow... As we, as we dive into God's word, as we spend time in prayer, as we see him um, be faithful to his promises again and again and again in our life, our heart's desire changes. And we move from people that, that chose God because we didn't want to go to hell by work of the Spirit. You know, I'm glad the Spirit used that to bring me home. But I'm glad he didn't leave me there. Because as we get to know our Savior more and more, our desires change We no longer just fear hell, but we begin to long for the heaven that's to come. We begin to long to be with our Savior. We begin to long to be with Him, to be in His presence. 
The Spirit begins to draw us deeper into deeper love with Christ. And the more you love something, the more you want to be with it. He's not just the best part of heaven, though. He is the way to heaven. Right? He, he, he begins in, in, in John 14 saying that he's going to prepare. He's giving them again a picture of him going to the cross. He's been telling them this for a while now that he's about to go do something really big. And they haven't been listening too well. But he says, I'm going to prepare for you a room. I'm going to prepare for you a room. It's his payment for our sins at the cross that reconciles us to God. That makes a way for us to be in relationship again with the creator of the universe. That makes a way for us to join him in heaven. And then he says in verses 4 through 6, he says, And and, and you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas, at this point, who's kind of become the mouthpiece of the, the hearts of the disciples, says, We don't know where you're going. And because we don't know where you're going, we don't have a clue how to get there. You know, this, um, this past, past Monday of, of Thanksgiving week, um, I got the joy. It was opening week of hunting season, if you didn't know that. Was this, this, a week from yesterday was the opening day for open gun season. And um, I grew up hunting and fishing with my dad, so I took my dad hunting. But it's been a long time since I've been up uh, hunting with my dad. And so most of the time I can kind of tell where we're going. But we, we got told where we were going to go sit on a stand. And then that was all we were told. And I'm looking at my dad. How, how do we get there? Can you? And my dad, you know, he has, he has Parkinson's. And with that comes a little bit of um, dementia now. And he's like, I, he, he didn't know either. And so we just kind of sat there for a while trying to figure out where we were going. Because I didn't know where we were going other than somebody told me we were going somewhere. And he couldn't remember how to get there. That's what Thomas is saying. You've been telling us you're going somewhere, but you haven't really told us where you're going. And because of that, I ain't got a clue. You haven't given us any directions. Into that unrest, into that uncertainty, into that anxiety, Jesus says to Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. So not only do we have a future with him, But we have a future that depends on him, depends on him and what he's going to do as he speaks to them. And from our perspective, it depends on what he has done. I am the way he is the means he uses this word, the way, which could be translated road or path. He uses as a metaphor, right? We we, we spent a few weeks this fall talking about God's word and, and how he uses the human language as he uses it as a metaphor here. And we know this use, right? I mean, if you've been in Barnes and Noble or you've been on Amazon in the self-help section, there is book after book after book that's the way to financial success, the way to six-pack abs, you know, the, the way to a healthy, happier life, the way to what, fill in the blank with whatever the book is. It's the way. What are they talking about in between the cover and the last page? The means by which you're going to obtain something. That's what he's saying. I am the way. I am the means by which you are going to obtain this glorious future. It's actually the emphasis. In this three-part phrase, the way, the truth, and the life, the emphasis is on the way, the truth, and the life. Round out for us what that means. Old Don Carson, to quote him again, says that, that Jesus is the way to God precisely because he is the truth of God and the life of God. The truth of God because he embodies the supreme revelation of God and the life 
because he's the one who has life in himself, as he says in John 5, 26. Or as we heard last week, as we looked at John 11 in the claim of being the resurrection and the life. Jesus is saying to them, you know the way because I am the way. I am the way you're going to get to this glorious future. I am the way. I am the means. No one comes to the Father except through me. And we know this verse well. We know it because it's one of the places we start our apologetic of exclusivity. That there's no way to God except through Christ. And yes, there is only one way to be saved. It's by grace, through faith in Christ alone. It's a gift of God through the Spirit. That's absolutely true. But who's Christ speaking this to? Is this a room full of the Pharisees and the scribes and the men of the law? Is it a room full of skeptics and unbelievers? No. That's not who he's speaking these words to. He's speaking these words to those he knows most intimately. He's speaking to, to these words to his thick-headed disciples, his faithful followers. So he's saying them as a comfort. He's saying to them as a comfort. And it is comforting. There's a comforting aspect to Christ saying, I am the only way. Because it removes from you the doubt you have in yourself to get it done. It removes from you that constant feeling of anxiety and guilt when whatever idol it is you turn to again and again and again fails again and again and again. He isn't ignoring here his exclusivity. It's clearly taught, but he is deepening our understanding of his dependability. He is deepening our understanding of our need for him. No one comes to the Father except through me. That through is a little Greek word that could be translated because of. So we could translate this, this, this passage, no one comes to the Father except because of me. That's poor English, I know. But it is beautiful English. He is the because of. He is the way. All of the emphasis here is on him what he is about to do on the cross for them, and from our perspective, what he has done on the cross for us. And so into the context of his followers, he says this, and it is good news. It is comforting news. It is reassuring news that the one person who is making this promise is the one who can fulfill it. You might remember a few years ago, there was an airplane that took off in New York, and it hit a flock of birds about 3,000 feet up. And um, it, it lost power in both engines. Now, it's not uncommon for a, a plane to hit a bird or two. But it was enough that, I mean, if you were probably sitting in the seat, you probably heard the, like, the thump, thump, thump. I'm sure it was glorious for all the kids on board. And, and, and the pilot came over the, 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 the speaker, and he was talking to the tower and said, what had happened? And he said these words, I'm going to try to land this plane in the Hudson River. And the people in the tower got a little worried. This is a big deal. A lot of bad things are about to happen. A couple bad things have already happened. They don't have any power, and they're about to crash, and they're about to attempt something that nobody else has ever done. And then the, the pilot gets on and, and prepares his passengers for the inevitable, the crash that is coming. Says, says to them, prepare yourself uh, for a crash landing. We're going to land in the Hudson River. Now, we know the end of the story. We know that Sully Sullenberger landed that plane successfully. I want you to take for a moment and put yourself in a seat of one of those passengers as, as you heard the thump of the plane's engines hitting birds and then the loss of power 
that you knew you had lost. The uncertainty of what's going to happen next. Your cell phones had to been turned off because you're in, uh, you, you're taken off, so you've got to turn off all your electronics. You're, you're frantically trying to turn it back on to call your loved ones and tell them that you love them because you're about to crash. And let's be honest, plane crashes aren't good things. Most people die in them. Now, we, we, we know now that it was successful, right? He landed this plane miraculously on the Hudson River and everyone lived and he had his 15 minutes of fame. And what we learned in that 15 minutes of fame was that the man that was flying the plane was the perfect guy that day. See, as, as we, we heard the stories of the passengers and heard him speak, we also heard a few people who knew him, who knew his personality, who knew who he was and knew that he was the kind of guy they just wanted to always have a plan. Always be prepared for what was going to come. And he also happened to have a little bit of a hobby, flying gliders. And so when he lost power in both engines and began to glide, he just went into what he does for fun. One FAA official said, I knew when I heard who the pilot was that the one person in our fleet of pilots that could do this was him. Because of how he was gifted because of the ability that he had. I think if you've been one of those passengers, been told you're going down, and then that FAA official comes on the radio and says, it's going to be okay. The one guy who can do this, the one guy with the ability and the power and the gifts to do this, is flying the plane. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what he's saying to you and me right now. Look, I know that life is a mess. I know it's broken. I I, I know that you struggle with guilt and shame every single day. And you're wondering how in the world you're going to get from where you're at into this glorious future with me. And he's saying, I'm flying the plane. I'm flying the plane and I'm the one who can land it. To you and I, he's saying, I'm the one that's flying the plane and it's already on the ground. You're safe and secure. You're safe and secure. I know it's shaky. He says, I'm the one. I'm the one who can obtain for you this glorious future. I'm the one who can forgive you of your sins. I'm the one who can have you declared righteous. And I'm preparing a way because I'm going to the cross. Or I have gone to the cross. Think about that. Think about how freeing that is. How freeing it is to realize that it's not on you and your works. That you're not the one flying the plane, but the one who has the ability to do it has already landed it safely. That's what the exclusivity is. The exclusivity says it's not just not other gods. It's not you or me either. He's the only one. He's the only one who can save us and he's promised to do it. That's comforting. That's comforting if you're here this morning and you're with Christ. The one who has promised it has accomplished it. And I understand if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. I understand if you're here this morning and, 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 and you've got doubts. And you don't follow Christ and, and, and you hear this and these claims of exclusivity and that's troubling for you. It's troubling for you. But what other religion, what other way of life and living says to you that all that you've hoped for, all that you dream of, is fulfilled not by your works, not by, by how pious you are, how good you are, not by how hard you try, but by God himself on your behalf. There isn't one. 
There isn't one. And so as we read this this morning, as we study it, and, and, and Christ claims this exclusivity, it is a call to repentance. For you to lay down your idols, to repent of your sins and to follow after him, the one who gives you the thing you hope for and you long for and the promise that he can get it done. But it's not a call to repentance just for those that aren't believers. It's a call to repentance as us as Christ followers. We so often forget that it's him and him alone. We so often forget that it is in him and him alone and we continue to try to secure these things for ourselves. Futile and failing. Rest in him. Our hearts long to look into the eyes of someone who knows us fully and loves us infinitely. And that is Christ Jesus, our Savior. The means by which we obtain our glorious future. Lastly, this is the certainty. The certainty of this glorious future. You can see in verses 7 to 11, he says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. Jesus is emphatically exclaiming everything he has been doing, everything he has been saying, every footstep, every and, every thee, has been in perfect step with the will of God the Father. Right, it's what he says. Philip's saying, show us, kind of reveals, right? The, the uncertainty they have. They, God, Jesus, you're saying we're going to go with you to your Father's house, but where do we stand with your Father? We get that you're for us. We're we're, we're convinced that you're for us. But how am I with God? How how, how am I with your Father? And Jesus, Jesus says, look, you're with me. You're my plus one at the wedding. They're going to accept you. He's going to accept you because you're with me. Whoever has seen me, he says, has seen the Father. Saying, look, Bro, Philip, I, 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 I get it, but believe me. Believe my words. At the very least, believe what you've seen me do these past three years. That God is with me and I am with him. That the Father is in me and I in him. Have you not seen the miracles I've done that prove that I'm united to, to him? If you know God the Father, you know God the Son. If you know God the Son, you know God the Father. Theologian, Ritterboss says it this way, that it's because of Jesus is pointing to us here that Jesus' uninterrupted communion with the Father. All of eternity, the Trinity has had this perfect union with one another. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is saying here now, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you want to know what the Father looks like, look at me. If you want to know how the Father is going to react, watch me. If you want to see the heart of the Father and the mercy of the Father, and the grace of the Father, and the justice of the Father, and on and on and on with all of the descriptors we could come up with, he says, look at me. I am the perfect and final revelation of God, the Father. 
If you know me, you know him. They don't just point, all of his works don't just point to what Jesus is about. They don't point to just his heart and his power. They point to the heart and the power of God the Father. Jesus knows what it's like to be loved by the Father. And we long to know. Right? We, we long to be loved by our fathers. Elton John. Sir Elton John, in, in, in a um, 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 Rolling Stone magazine interview a few years ago, said essentially, um, in speaking of his childhood and his parents, said, my parents never held me. I want you to stop right there. I want you to weep for him. His parents never held him. And they never told him they loved him. Some of you in in here this morning have relationships with your parents that don't look that much different than that. I weep for you. But your heart's no different than mine because you also love and, and, and you want to be known and to be loved by the Father. And if you've got kids in here this morning, hold them. Declare to them your love for them. But declare to them the love of the Father for them even greater. But in saying this, the interviewer kept going and, and asked Elton John to, to kind of clarify what he meant. And he said this, that he's, um, the, though his father has been dead a long time, he's still trying to prove things to him. He said, often, I still do things and say to myself, Dad, you would have loved this. How sad is that? Why do we long for the love of our earthly father so much? Why do we long for their approval so much? Because we long for the approval and the love of our Heavenly Father. And while our earthly father is a picture of that, it is just a shadow. So we long for it. We, we, we want it. And nothing else matters. And Jesus is making that clear to us. He, he's saying to, to us and, and, and through his disciples, he's saying, look, if I accept you, if I welcome you, the Father accepts you and welcomes you. See how I, how I welcome and dine with sinners. See my heart for the, the brokenhearted. See my heart for, for those whose bodies are broken. Saying, if, if you feel my love, you know the Father's love. If you see my commitment to you, you know the Father's commitment to save us, to save you. Our certainty of this glorious future rest in the union of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And, 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 and our union with Christ that saves us by faith is founded in this eternal union of the Trinity. That's why we can be certain of the promises he has given us. Because what we see in Jesus, we know to be true of God himself. This morning, what, what uncertainty is it that you have in your life? What, what place is it that you're so anxious about you're driving yourself crazy? Where do you need to know the love of God? Where do you need to, to, to speak these truths and promises into your life again? Maybe, maybe it's at work. Maybe there's things that are causing you to be anxious about work. Maybe it's in your marriage. It's hanging on by a thread. Maybe it's in your kids. Little Johnny's making decisions that you don't think are good and you don't know where it's going to lead him. And you're worried sick. 
Maybe you're a senior and you've been applying to colleges and you're just waiting now anxiously for acceptance. In each and every single one of those places where we're uncertain, where we're worried and anxious, Jesus looks at us and says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And the future you have that's been secured by me, that's certain. It's certain because I and the Father love you. It's certain because I and the Father are committed to you. He says to his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you. He says to us this morning, I have gone and prepared a place for you. Do you have a place? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love for us, for your commitment to us, for the person of Christ and his work. We ask that you would encourage us this week as we are reminded again and again of our need for you, that we can be certain of a future with you because of the means by which it has been accomplished. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.